Are you gonna? <laughs> I already gonna... said my name. I'm Benjamin Yap. <laughs> I'm Eli. Uh, who am I? <laughs> I'm Eli Sands. <laughs> it's Senora Sands to you. Oh, oh boy! <laughs> and you're listening to Deep Cut. It's actually Profe Sands, but okay. Oh, Profe Sands. I fucked I fuck that. I can't. Whenever we have a movie in a different language, I somehow always <laughs> end up mimicking that language on the, on the episode. We were just talking and about I, the potential of getting canceled. This is seems like a solid way to do it, right? Yes. Yes. <laughs> on Deep Cut, we compare a director's most popular film with a personal favorite chosen by one of us. We also discuss the director's life and career to bring context that helps us view their movies as they may want us to. Hello! Welcome to a new director series. And yeah. before we get into our discussion on the work of Mary Lou Diazabaya and her 1998 seminal film, Jose Rizal, just a few things to remind you of. If you're enjoying the show, please remember to give us a rating or review where you get and listen to podcasts you can also keep up with us at deep cut pod on twitter instagram facebook and letterbox and if you want to talk about anything with us feedback talk about movies tell us to watch something read something life advice something yeah tell us tell us what to do we'll say yes on, on our discord server to which you'll find links in the description below Okay, here we go. Today on the podcast, we are introducing the work of Mary Lou Diaz Abaya, one of the most important directors of the second golden age of Filipino cinema, and diving into her epic historical biopic, Jose Rizal. We are going to be going back to our podcast roots by doing a full cut and dry popular slash deep cut set of episodes. So today we are doing our popular pick. Released in 1998, the film Jose Rizal tells the story of the Filipino national hero and writer who fought for the country's independence from Spanish colonial rule in the late 19th century. Before we dive into this big pool of director and film context, I want to get your initial reactions. So what did you both think of Jose Rizal? Ben, who finished last, <laughs> can go first. Um, <clears throat> I thought it was a good-looking movie, but a very strong watch this in class vibes from this film. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that's maybe my biggest knock against it. Like, it feels very much like a biopic movie about a famous person you should know about in school, and Jose Rizal is that person for the Philippines that everyone is supposed to know about. And knowing that Apparently, there's a law in the Philippines that every child must read both of his books and learn about Jose Rizal in, I think, high school in the Philippines. It really wow. is that movie for that context that you probably put this on after you finish reading the books and learned about Jose Rizal and then kind of are able to see his life dramatized through film. Mm -hmm. However, I think the film falls into a lot of the pitfalls of the general biopics that are being made usually where it's just too much information and like 
kind of going through a lot of life stuff and it's mm. not selective enough to kind of be an interesting examination of his life and also an interesting dramatic and interesting way of thinking about how to make his life dramatic like it is a dramatization yes like the scenes are dramatized but they're not to me dramatic because i feel mm. like the film doesn't really figure out what is here that's really interesting from a film standpoint from a history class standpoint it's like okay because it shows you the events that kind of lead up to the kind of person that he is but i feel like it needed just to be cut down to like find out what exactly is important about his life that makes this an interesting movie and an interesting story so yeah i think that's just kind of how i feel about it yeah honestly a lot of your i guess pushbacks against the film i sort of fully agree with and i'm definitely like the least biopicy kind of person mm. so this was not in my wheelhouse at all but i don't know yeah i will expand on my thoughts later mm. but eli what did you think of jose rizal yeah, so Mary Lou Diaz Abaya is, I believe, the first, if not the second, director we've covered who I hadn't heard of before the point we began the show. I've so never heard of it's it really either. Exciting to, <laughs> yeah, it, it's really Same. exciting to start in on a totally new director to me. And immediately I was very taken by the very self-assured camera movement that's very graceful and gives a lot of urgency to what it's showing right off the bat. And as Ben said, very compellingly photographed, really striking imagery. I also really like the lead performance from Cesar Montano. And I think for me, the history class vibes come through in a bit of a hagiographic hey portrayal of Rizal and a lack of central perspective from him that feels very nuanced. But where the script doesn't provide that, I think Montana's performance does. I also really enjoy movies that move through decades very quickly and give you mm -hmm. a very big sweep of time in a country. Thinking of like Zhang Yimou's To Live, which I really enjoy. I also was thinking of Sardar Udham, another anti-colonial mm -hmm. movie from India that I spoke about a little bit on our 2021 in review episode. It definitely follows that history class mode, the anti-colonial film mode. It has quote-unquote good Spaniard characters in the movie in a way that maybe doesn't feel super useful. But I found it to be an enjoyable watch, and I'm definitely excited to see Mary Lou Diaz Abaya's deep cut pick from you, Wilson, mm -hmm. because if this is the starting point, then I'm very interested. Yeah. And uh, just so you both know that Jose Rizal is like at the bottom of my Mary Lou Diaz yeah. <laughs> bio yeah. ranking right now. <laughs> like and this I'm feels sort of, like the film you yeah. make because you want to make some cash. Like she was just making some money with this one. That This is the feeling yeah. I'm getting. You know what I mean? Like it's like, let me do this big biopic that everyone's going to see. Like literally, I think the entirety of the Filipino <laughs> student population probably has seen this film. Like probably. You can see so many letterbox <laughs> reviews of this movie being like, watch this for class, but enjoyed it. <laughs> of course. <laughs> <laughs> but if it is a movie that is that kind of sort of required viewing, then it does have a sharp edge in yeah. what it wants to say. Oh, in a definitely. certain sense, which is cool. And I think it's sort of 
for me, it seems like a top tier biopic because of how subversive it sort mm-hmm. of approach to like telling his story is. And I structurally, think like, order like structurally of events. order yeah. of events. And I think that is to do with Ricky Lee and the other screenwriters and the way that they wanted to, to tackle Jose Rizal as a figure. And also there is something to do with how, I guess, controversial some aspects of his life are and how they didn't want to really anger folks in how they depicted his life. Yeah, I do have to say on that, that the scene where he is flirting with Leonor, they really remind you like five or six times with their cousins. <laughs> like, cousins. They really push that button hard. <laughs> they just cousins who what care for each other. What if my father walks in? What, he'll just see two cousins caring for each other. <laughs> they just care for each other a lot. And they, they like do. to I can't argue make with each that. other happy. <laughs> Apparently. They like to give themselves that feeling of happiness. <laughs> of... Such an iconic uh, scene. <laughs> yeah, for real. <laughs> I have to say, though, like, I think from the top, like, I think what's an interesting kind of pairing to this film, and I want, I guess there's a lot of films like this, where it's like the biopics about the figure being interviewed by another person. Yeah. And then I think this one, okay, Jackie's one, and I think another one I was thinking about is like A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood is Mm. also that, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Um, And I think those are like interesting entry points into Jose Rizal. So if you watched either of those, that this might be interesting to look at in looking at how the narrative plays out and like how that kind of structure works because this is a pretty common structure that's used for the biopic good point yeah okay so my turn (laughs) i saw this movie two times and i think the first time i was like not into it so i stopped it and i like stopped and started this movie probably like five times to get to the end it's a two hour like nearly three hour long movie and I was not feeling it and I was not into the flow of it. And also things were just going on in my life where I couldn't like devote three hours, a full three hour chunk to finishing it. But I was probably like three movies into my Marilu Diaz Abaya adventure. And I was still able to pick out the really strong directorial choices behind the camera and just a really strong eye and also a great corralling of like moving performances within the film and i think that was very very apparent and even within this massive big budget movie she's able to really shine through as a director which is reason enough to to bring this on the podcast but yeah i really wanted to for a really long time get into filipino directors because well my mom's from the philippines and i think Similarly, I I talked about using cinema to discover or to rediscover Hong Kong and my love for Hong Kong with Johnny Toe and Wong Gawai and all those other directors. And I think that has started to happen for me, albeit a, a little bit later, for Filipino directors. And because I'm so amazed by these directors, especially those in the the second golden generation of the 70s to the 80s, because I'm so amazed by their direction. And I also feel like as directors themselves, they are deep cuts. Not many people internationally 
know of these directors. Um, I wanted to use this podcast as a platform to maybe like bring to light these directors and these films and encourage people to check them out because they're incredible movies in there. And yeah, just great works. So this is going to be only the first director in a series of directors, hopefully, that I'll, I'll get to bring to you guys on the podcast. And I'm just very, very excited to embark on this Filipino cinema journey with you guys. So before I get into Diaz Abaya's biography, I do want to point out this quote from a book I've been reading. So this book is called Early Cinema in Asia, and it is written by this experimental doc filmmaker slash film researcher, Nick Diocampo. He's Filipino, and in the introduction, he talks about how to view early cinema in Asia. And when cinema emerged internationally, a lot of these Asian countries were under colonial rule. So he's talking about where to start when thinking about a national cinema. And I'm just going to read this quote here. The Asian cinemas we know today did not come from nowhere, nor did they indigenously emerge. The dynamics of colonial and national forces determining a cinema's identity and functionality continue to blur and affect each other far beyond the political demarcations set by phenomenal events like granting a country its independence. And I think just trying to reframe our minds when thinking about cinemas from Asia or cinemas from countries that have been colonized because there is a direct need to convey stories of being under colonial rule and like the the pain that that causes and a lot of like societal problems just stem from that. And I think that's why Diocampo states in this book that it's really hard for us to separate like films created in that country from a sort of national cinema. Whereas with the States or with the UK, when you have sort of you you live in freedom like the entire like history of the country most of the time there's not that like collective memory that artists need to build upon yeah and that's just my preface into to getting into Marilu Diaz Abaya okay I will admit that I had questions as I watched about that idea of a national style and how much Marilu Diaz Abaya is in conversation with that even just from a camera direction standpoint thank you for sharing that before I get into this director biography, I do want to shout out Monty, who's a listener of the podcast and who provided us with a lot of resources or provided me with a lot of resources, including this scan from a book called Direct Essays on Filipino Filmmakers and this essay on Merlu Diaz Abaya, which I basically like just grabbed all this director information from. And this essay is written by Gil Cuito. So yeah, thank you, Monty. And yeah, this is the benefits of having a Discord and having a community. <laughs> um, uh, it's, With cool people this is, like Monty. Exactly. And it's a collective effort. So Marilu Diaz Abaya was born in Quezon City on March 30th in 1955. 
she lived a very privileged childhood. She was a child of two lawyers. They had a very progressive family. Her mom worked through raising seven children and became the first woman vice president of the Philippine National Bank. Although her parents were lawyers, Mary Lou and her siblings grew up surrounded by arts. Their home had a lot of priceless paintings from national artists. The children were forced to take up piano, ballet, theater. And even though Mary Lou wasn't good at any of these, she realized that they helped her later on in the future. She was never really a film buff. And I think she was sort of, she said that she was really cornered into filmmaking in a lot of different ways. But first of all, when going to college at her Catholic tertiary institution, the Assumption Convent, she wanted to study Asian studies in the history department. But the history department was full. And she was sort of forced to enroll in communication arts. And that's where her passion for theater acting and film began and grew from there. And another one of these influences in her life was meeting her boyfriend and future husband, Manolo Abaya. And she would say that every time that we'd go on a date, a still camera or a Super 8 camera would always be sitting in the car. While walking in the park, he'd be shooting me. He'd be shooting everything. I found it very annoying. Yeah, I think I'm I'm guilty of over photographing friends. <laughs> Similarly, yeah, I, uh, I relate to you, Manolo. <laughs> and they both really wanted to get married. Well, I guess she really wanted to get married, being raised in this very like Catholic frame of mind. But Manolo wanted to go to film school in London, so. She had to wait, and she also wanted to go to film school in London, but her parents said they can't live in the same city because they're not married yet. So I think from this, you're already getting an idea of how Filipino society had these very like strict rules. Uh, and I think that will come into play later on when, when we watch the next film that we cover on the podcast. And um, honestly, that bit about Jose Rizal and his, as they call her, mistress, Josephine, and mm-hmm. the idea that they're not married, but that they're living in the grace of the Lord that felt very like brushed over quickly. And I wondered if there was more socially to the framing yes. of that moment. Hmm. Yes, I think there's definitely stuff there. And like, I guess whether or not like she lived with him or I don't know. Yeah, there, there's I mean, a lot of debate for her a lot. Like he cares for his cousin. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So instead of going to film school in London, Mary Lou decides to go to film school in the U.S. And she enrolls in Loyola Marymount University, another Catholic institution. Um, And there she got her master's in film and TV. And after they finished their courses, they got married and lived in London for a bit, where Mary Lou continued her studies at the London International Film School. So you're already getting this idea of Mary Lou Diaz Abaya growing up in some sort of like privilege. She had these access to these institutions and she was allowed to study film. After spending time in London where Mary Lou was really not enjoying herself, they went back home and the Abayas with their theater friends set up an indie film company called Cine Filipinas. So they went about 
adapting this work into their first feature film, and their friends all took up different roles in the sound department and producing. Manolo wanted to be a cinematographer and edit, and the way that Mary Lou puts it was that the only role that was unfilled at the end was the director. And at hmm. the time, Mary Lou was three months pregnant and sort of initially resisted, but soon gave in. And she said herself that it would be an adventure. Um, Sorry, so, she directed this movie while pregnant? Yeah, her first feature. Yes, yes. And there's this incredible essay that she writes where she writes about directing pregnant and huh. um how she felt doing that and it's very beautiful i think if, if i find a way I'll, I'll be able to like link it in the show notes but i will definitely share it with you too um so the film wasn't a success it was sort of like a box office bomb but i think it put mary lou and her co-creators on the map and through a local beer house that was frequented by indie filmmakers. She met some producers, and she also met Ricky Lee, who was probably, like, aside from her husband, the most important collaborator that she had in her career. And Ricky Lee would go on to co-write 10 of her 21 features, including her next film, which was Brutal. And Brutal was her first big hit at the Metro Manila Film Fest and sort of cemented her in the filmmaking world in the Philippines as someone to watch. And that was just her second feature. I just caught Brutal yesterday, and it's really incredible. I would encourage you all to watch it. It becomes the first part of like a three film series that has like two syllables ending with all um <laughs> like brutal carnal and moral um <laughs> talking about women in philippine society um mm. and the trials and tribulations that they go through just to be like living in that society so the director ishmael bernal uh, who directed classic bernal. works like Bernal, yeah. Brutal. Yeah. <laughs> Bernal, moral. Bernal, yes. <laughs> Was really enamored by her work, and he sort of became Abaya's mentor over the rest of his life, basically. And from him, she says, she learned to love art is to embrace poverty and uncertainty and not to be afraid of the uncertainties of an artist's lifestyle. Um, so I think... After that, she was able to, like, really fully devote herself to filmmaking. And she made movies through the course of the 70s and the 80s in that second golden age of Filipino cinema. And this was a time of moral flux because it was during the time of dictatorial rule and with this military dictatorship by... President Ferdinand Marcos. That name should not be unfamiliar to you guys now because his son's in office, which is yep. sort of wild. <laughs> uh, yeah. 
uh, I have this interesting quote from the production designer that worked on her film Carnal, um, sort of comparing her to the other two big directors of the time, Lino Broca and Ishmael Bernal. He says, if Lino Broca was more like a captain leading troops and Bernal was an autocratic professor, Abaya was more like a sister or best friend sharing an adventure. She never berated an actor in front of others and would always quietly talk about matters with them. And she was always mm. open to collaboration on story ideas from her crew members. Yeah. And I think she said about this time of making films like at the height of political oppression. Abaya says, why why was this period so rich in filmic expression? She says, because both artist and spectator were in a state of ferment. I believe Mm. that in times of deprivation, you're hungry not only for food or the basics, but also for expression or for a release of anger. And I think that sort of ties back into my idea about national cinema being one of collective trauma or collective historical memory. Um, Mm. And just the need to create those films rather than the want. And thus, following the end of martial law, there sort of was a stagnation in films being produced because I guess there wasn't really a need to create films with really like punchy social commentary. And She decided to work in television in the 80s, and that allowed her to raise her kids and have a regular family life. And her husband also turned to work in advertising and didn't end up working in films after that. But studios began calling, producers began calling, and before long, she found herself back on a film set, and she realized that she missed it a lot. She said after her first take, she, like, wept and she was so happy after she said print she printed the first take from the 80s onwards was the period in which she made she made jose rizal i see this distinct tenure gap in her filmography yeah Yeah. and then i think after that she became a more commercially minded filmmaker so i think you really see two different sides to her and i think that's what i'm trying to do with choosing this popular pick and this deep cut pick so before i get into Jose rizal i want to talk a little bit about her later in life so in 2007 she was diagnosed with breast cancer and she dialed back on filmmaking and established a film school in a lot that her family owned but prior to that she has always been teaching like filmmaking so she really had a passion for teaching and i think that's something that eli and i were <laughs> simpatico um yes sir. She, she said as young as eight i would gather my siblings and house help mount a green blackboard in front of them and with real chalk mark important details of lessons i learned in class earlier in the day i always mm. tell my students to learn as much as they can then give everything away to anybody interested this way they'll always have room to learn even more um yeah so she was described by her students as very motherly as a teacher. She would always call her students anak, which meant child. Hmm. She fostered a lot of really important directors, production designers, cinematographers, editors, and screenwriters through her schools. I think her school is still active today. I'm not quite sure, but <laughs> but I th- think it is still active today. And I think one important teaching tidbit that I really loved from this book 
one of her students said, she said it was very important to express the significant human experience. <laughs> the, the abbreviation would be she <laughs> in any storytelling. <laughs> so every story is about love and how that love transforms us. So that being the basis of any film that you want to make. With her cancer diagnosis, she was very open with the public because she was already a very big public figure at the time. And she was open about the trials and tribulations with cancer. She passed away in late 2012 at the age of 57. So that's still wow. really young. And she, I guess if yeah. she, yeah, lived a really long life, she had a lot more students to teach and features to give to the world. Her son said she was meticulous to the end. She planned and prepped her four-day vigil and burial. She chose speakers and contacted them herself. She specified which kind of bouquets of flowers that was going to be placed at her funeral. And her son said that was our joke that she was directing until the very end. Hmm. Great. Wow, okay. That's incredibly bittersweet. <laughs> yes. But I she had a lot like, to give, and she gave a lot already. And yeah, I think that's yeah. that's really incredible. Like in a way, she brings up like a whole generation of Filipino filmmakers. In a sense, she does. Yeah, uh, huh. I like this idea that every story is about love. Like it seems a little bit trite, but I think about it. I'm like, you know, you could make an argument about almost maybe every movie. Yeah, like you could yeah. make that argument, even like the most pessimistic, sinister film. You could probably still find a way to make it make sense. Mm -hmm. Right, because I think mm -hmm. that's still the most inviting emotion to use as part of any dramatic or comedic storytelling. Yeah, I kind of like that. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> I sense Eli is pushing back against that idea, and I, I also, <laughs> you can do it. I also, I'm like, oh, is it there? Like, I don't even see it. It might not even be there in all of Diaz Abaya's own works. So I don't know. I believe it. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> <Move> on. <laughs> on to context for Jose Rizal. So Jose Rizal, if you don't know, is one of the most well-known public historical figures in the Philippines. He is on the peso coin. There are streets named after him. There's like a whole section of Manila where he was executed. Like it's his Jose Rizal Park. He is a very, very, very well-known household historical name. And prior to Diaz Abaya's biopic of him there had been a few biopics on jose rizal made with the first generation the first golden age of filipino cinema directors and also adaptations of his two books and i'm gonna say the books now <laughs> the first book is called noli ma noli me tangere and the second tangere. book is <laughs> sorry <laughs> thanks teacher do you want to just? Do you want to? <laughs> Noli me tangere and filibus el. Uh, what's the second one called? El filibusterismo. Yeah, you got it. I got it. I got it. <laughs> Thank you. I passed Spanish. S say in that second the title. First grade. Right. <laughs> el filibusterismo. Ooh, my hair. Oh my. Got goosebumps. <laughs> I think Spanish is such a beautiful language. It, it flows really well. I feel like it it like sits in my mind the way like Norwegian sits in my mind. I just really like how it sounds. Um, yeah, <laughs> that's where, on Spanish. Hmm, where did you? Where? What? What properties do you enjoy that, that have Norwegian spoken in them? Oh, interesting I question. I yeah, like I don't think I've thought about Norwegian cinema or TV in a ever yeah, in my life. Yeah, what have you watched? 
Wow. <laughs> if you Carmen weren't Jean. around me around, what what was it, like 2016, 2017, <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs> I would be talking your ear off on Yuli Andam's seminal series, Scom. <laughs> Message me on Discord if you want to learn if more. If you ever want to see a person make their personality a TV show, <laughs> time travel to 2016 in Connecticut. <laughs> Brian Wilson, <laughs> TV show no, that's body. brutal. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, it was a good time, guys. It was a good time. It was. <laughs> I enjoyed so, how you enjoyed it. <laughs> I did enjoy. It. I didn't hey, watch it too. W- wait till <laughs> I didn't wait like till it. we do a like a three episode stint on that series, oh. <laughs> please. <laughs> that is too much. Watching. <laughs> the project came to Abaya in the middle of her career, so she had already established herself as a household name as a director. This production company, big production company, it's still alive today, GMA. Their producers went to Abaya with this biography, and it would cost 80 million pesos, so that's 2 million US dollars, which doesn't seem like a lot, but it was more than 10 times the price of an average film made in the Philippines at that time. And it also became the most expensive film to be shot in the Philippines. And Is that she initi- 2 million 1998 dollars? I guess, yeah. I don't yeah. know what that is in inflation. So, do the math. Do the math, do the math. So that's 3,700,000 Wait, <laughs> I said that poorly. <laughs> that's three million seven hundred thousand dollars today. Yeah, and that's, that's like I feel like you could it's all tell about exchange rate, how, man. It's all yeah, about exactly. standard of living. Yeah. It is standard of living. Yes. Yep. So if you want to make a film for cheap, go to the no. Please don't do that. Do not outsource your <laughs> filmmaking wow. to Southeast Asia. Do not do that. Go I caught myself cheap before labor. I said it. <laughs> go exploit. <laughs> so she had initially refused the project, and another filmmaker that Ben is sort of familiar with, Mike DeLeon, mm. was already working on a Jose Rizal biopic and actually shot some of it, but sort of found himself at an impasse and then backed out. Um, he was like such a Mike DeLeon move. Yeah, but Mike like, DeLeon <laughs> would actually, he would make a film called Bayaning Third World, which is about two filmmakers trying to make a Jose Rizal biopic. Um, so I think... He got he at least got something out of this experience. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I um, think Mike's too much of a kind of a renegade-ish filmmaker yeah. to like confine mm. himself to a commercial-ish undertaking yes. of this Jose Rizal story. Yes. Yeah. And you can kind of see that just from the construction of Binding Third World that he doesn't want to go at this story in a kind of straight-laced fashion. Exactly. Yeah. Whereas Diaz Abaya sort of wants to like work within the commercial yeah. parameters and then try to elevate from within. And there's um, nothing wrong with that. Yeah. No, and I think she succeeds. All. The GMA producers found her again and she said she would do it on two conditions. The first condition would be to scrap all the footage that Mike DeLeon shot and start again. And from a new script from screenwriter Ricky Lee and to change the lead to Cesar Montano. And she said this was a scary project for her. She had looked up to Rizal and read his novels and poems in its original Spanish and sort of found it really hard to film a biography of the most like beloved Filipino historical figure of all time. 
and GMA really wanted to make the definitive film on Jose Rizal. So she was still really, really hesitant, but her son, Marco, who was studying at Jose's alma mater at the time, Ateneo, pushed her to make the film. She said she was thinking about future generations when making this decision. So there was a lot of life facts that remained up for debate that her and the screenwriters wanted to sort of like work around or work with. So was he a reformist or did he actually support the revolution was Mm. one of them. So the strategy that they took, which I think made it a lot harder, but actually made the film a lot more interesting was to write the film from the point of view of Rizal as an artist or an intellectual in a web of scenes from both his life and the novels that he wrote and explore the connection between them. So there's these two jumping off points. So Rizal's time writing in Ghent and also his time being imprisoned right before his execution where he talks to his defense attorney. She developed a three-month syllabus for the lead actor Montano that included history, politics, poetry, fencing, penmanship, and Spanish Mm. diction. The whole team was required to read Rizal's two novels and would quiz each other every Friday on facts. Um, she started she, a classroom. <laughs> she was a teacher at heart. They used CGI for the first time in Filipino cinema, so they were able to get the old city of Intramuros, the buildings there, which have been like torn down during World War II. I had no idea there was CGI, except for maybe the moth. That flies. Yes. but i had no idea there was any other cgi in it me too it was really seamless i was really surprised wow and the film actually opened to mixed critical reception so some say it was dull and some others calling it a masterpiece but it won 17 awards that's like the most awards that like ever was won at the metro manila film festival including best picture director screenplay and actor And it went on to become one of the most decorated films ever from the Philippines. It also became hugely profitable. And it is one of Abaya's most internationally seen films played at Busan, Tokyo, Madrid, Chicago, and New York film festivals. And that is the reason why it is the most popular pick. And also the fact that people continue to watch it every year because it is assigned as part of a history class syllabus, hmm. maybe. Even though on Letterboxd it says morale has the most views, I think this actually has the most eyes on it. And this is why we are covering Jose Rizal on this episode. Okay, that is my very long director introduction and movie introduction, but I hope you guys were interested and it made you want to explore her filmography more. Definitely. I'm curious about this AL trilogy. I don't know what to call it. It sounds oh, really interesting. Yeah. Well, yeah, we're going to catch one out. of them. Catch one of them. I'm, I'm Next curious. week. Ooh. Like, Carnal played recently, I think, at the archive, but I missed it. It was, like, before I started working there. Yeah, um, all three got yeah. restorations, albeit... Okay, this is my one qualm with this Philippine National Film Registry, but their restorations look like shit. They cannot, like, I don't know if it's the source material, but I feel like the colors are all warpy, but I think that's part of how they preserve the film itself. And... Like time Don't tell me this was a restoration. No, no, no. This, this was, was not a restoration. I don't think Jose Rizal has been it... restored. Yeah. No, it hasn't been. It hasn't been. Which is feels surprising because mm-hmm. it's the one that makes the most money. 
Exactly. Right? You can yeah. sell the 4K restoration to all the schools one more time. Yeah. Yeah, Feels but surprising. I think they were, they're trying to do like the earlier stuff first. So the 70s and 80s stuff right. first. And Probably because, because this was made more critical 90s. condition. Yeah. 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 Yeah, mm. yeah. I mean, I think the thing that like stood out the most from your background was the talk about the inclusion of the dramatization of his two novels within the story and narrative of the film. Because mm-hmm. I think if anything, from a storytelling standpoint, that those parts are the biggest narrative gambit of the film and like mm-hmm. whether that will work right and obviously Rizal's novels are partially about his own life so it kind of fits into a biopic about his life yeah. and how it kind of dovetails and but it's a very interesting part of the film it does also lengthen the film by it a does. significant amount but yeah i was wondering what you guys thought about those parts being totally new to Rizal as a figure and of course his work I enjoyed having that in there, but I can see how knowing his work, it would feel overstuffed. Or like if you've read those books, you may not need to see so much dramatization of passages from the books. Mm. And I will say that the sequence towards the end, when his character, Simon, formerly Ibarra, enters Rizal's cell and starts Does talking with him. Work? I was like, for you, eh, not, that not really worked for me. for me. It didn't ruin anything for me, but I was like, oh, okay. Like, mm. I'm like kind of like lukewarm on it. It was like kind of a nice surprise. I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. Like, let's go here right now. And like, it's definitely reaching for something to do something like that. Right. Yeah. And I was like, I think the decision to hold yeah. it back and only use it in that one point, of course, made it very strong. And I think, yeah. yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I think the final 30 minutes of this film are where Diaz Abaya and Montano give their best work. And I think it becomes very emotionally driven. And I was able to like just really be immersed in those last few moments with Rizal. And that's yeah. interesting because I feel kind of the opposite where the sharper work to me is earlier in the picture where Montano is not doing so much overt emoting, but the way he reacts to things very subtly and slightly conveys a lot and communicates a similar amount of pain doing less and hiding more, but somehow transmitting it to the camera. He's quite remarkable on screen. He's a handsome man, too. (laughs) Yes, he is. Yes, he is. What's that skincare routine? (laughs) Good mustache. I feel like, I think my main struggle with it is that the depth that you get from the character is that the story is trying to tell you that, oh, you know, he takes a while to kind of warm up to the idea of being the symbol of rebellion. Yes. Right. But from the very first frame, he already is a symbol of rebellion for a viewer and for most of the other characters because you're kind of going at the story from a hindsight point of view. And the film doesn't really give you a different entry point into this because it's a film that occurs in flashbacks. Yeah, and furthermore, Ben, you earlier highlighted how the structure of this movie is unknown character interviews very well-known character, which Mm -hmm. simultaneously gets us close to a character's perspective and holds them at a little bit of a distance. If the audience surrogate is... The interviewer, in this case, Taviel, the lawyer who is assigned to Rizal, then we're at a distance. But because there's 
this flashback structure, it simultaneously also asks us to step into his subjectivity. Yeah. And the cuts to those flashbacks are motivated not always by Rizal's explanation, yeah. but sometimes mm. by his reminiscence. Yeah. yeah. Just like a so, look on his face. It's in a way like the device of the interviewer is not really used in that way. It's just there because yeah. it's a thing that happened because he was interviewed by a defense counsel from Spain. It's less about how the Spanish person comes to understand Rizal, but more of like, here's a person that heard the story, but then you don't really filter the story through his eyes. No, not it's more about Rizal relaying himself. Yeah. It's not necessarily a better way of doing it, but it's just that then the device of him doesn't really do much for the story and like how the story is conveyed in an interesting way, at least. You know what I mean? Like we don't understand how does Taviel change? Because I felt like it was quite sudden how he changes to like kind of like... Yeah, but I don't think it was quite... important, right? Like yeah, I just don't think that's but, like the crux of... But that's to me what's interesting in this. Like that's what's dramatic in this, you know? Like the argument of like, how do I get this person to understand me, Rizal, and to come to my side of the story? Like to me, that's interesting, you know? Well, the other thing is that I'm thinking about how Wilson in the background section mentioned that it's unclear to historians how closely aligned with the revolutionaries Rizal really was. And I think the confusion around that and the leaps of assumption that the movie makes about his connections to revolutionaries, one, is a little bit contradictory within the text. Mm -hmm. There are different parts that go back and forth and make it hard to access what exactly Rizal's perspective was. And also, it muddies up to your point, Ben, what the utility of characters like Taviel and other characters who come to know Rizal, like the young Filipino man who works in the jail building, what their utility is becomes unclear narratively. Yeah. yeah. And I think a lot of the public pushback against Rizal as a historical figure is that he was a revolutionary figure that was very loved by the span or not like abided by like spanish rule a lot and didn't stated himself was not a revolutionary and did not join revolutionary forces so a lot of people now are being like why are we holding him to such a high pedestal when he basically didn't really do much hmm. so does the movie punch up his radicalism in some ways it's possible it could be. I'm not mm. too sure. But I think that is the thing that Ricky Lee and the other screenwriters were trying to contend with when writing this. And I think that was the challenge that they had when portraying his political leanings. Mm. Am I right to say that generally resolves participation in rebellion is really as a symbol due to the nature of his novels? Yes. Right? Because he doesn't necessarily do anything. He just expressed right. an idea, right? Yes. And then, like, that idea was able to increase the fervor for rebellion because of the the content of his novels, which were well, fiction novels, right? Yes. So that's actually really interesting about how that historically makes him into a rebellion symbol. Exactly. Despite and not being a key figure in the physical rebellion itself. Right. right? And of course, and his that... death makes him into a martyr as well for those ideas. Yes. And I feel like that is another yeah. challenge posed to Lee and the other writers because yeah. a lot of... 
the stuff that happens in his life is not like actionable stuff it's stuff that he wrote so it's like how to translate that just thinking and writing into interesting filmmaking yeah is i think a thing that you have to jump through and i think by including the characters in the novels and the novels themselves in the film i think they're able to make it more interesting to the viewers so it's not known how close he was to the katipunan the group led by andres bonifacio in real life it's not known if rizal was close to them Mm, i don't know if i can answer that (laughs) (laughs) we don't know i think for now we don't know like Mm. for us we don't know (laughs) well clearly (laughs) (laughs) if we didn't realize we don't know anything so okay okay okay. so there was an uprising that he condemned and even though the members of the katipunan had made him their honorary president and used his name as a cry so it's basically what happened like he denounced them publicly but they still claimed him but he said he always believed that a peaceful stance was the best way to avoid like further suffering in the country which is also mm-hmm. what was stated in the film yeah it's it, i think it's a really interesting dynamic and i think the film delves into it a little bit but i think doesn't want to like really anger either side of the debate yeah. because it is like the jose rizal film so i don't think it can make big punchy statements like that yeah um, i think that's how it kind of like falls into this biopic kind of pitfalls that because it needs to venerate a figure like then it's not able to do more interesting narrative like gambits to like Mm -hmm. interrogate what the figure really is and what the figure means and like how the figure is changed through this veneration right Mm -hmm. because by the time she makes this Rizal is already like a huge historical figure for the Philippines and so it's like how do you go at this in a way that is interesting without going like respecting the idea that Rizal is venerated by the Philippines, yeah. It's like tough situation to like yeah. agree to yourself that to like is, do yeah, this. I, like, I mean, this is what biopics are like, but this is like one of the more like big people to cover. Other biopics, I think, don't have that much responsibility. Yeah, because this one is big. This is like an entire nation. <laughs> <laughs> it's not like a pop star or anything. You know what I mean? Like no. that one. Like maybe some people don't like him, but this one is like everybody knows this person. You know what I mean? And yeah has been taught to have an opinion about them, right? Yeah. Hmm. It's kind of wild. <laughs> but I think Dia Zabaya does a really good job with what she's given, like with the work that she's totally. given. And I think she's really yeah. able to elevate this film and the screenplay just with her direction. And yeah. I sort of want to get into the stylizing of this yeah, sure. film yeah. a little bit. Let's. Because I think that's one of the strongest elements. I Agreed. really love the sweeping camera movements and mm-hmm. a lot of wonders that are like showcasing action from different standpoints and the camera moving between different setups and i think that is in contrast to the really still framing and blocking of Rizal and Taviel in his jail cell and i think mm just making the flashbacks seem like a swooping adventure makes this feel very grand. Even though there's not a lot of actionable elements on screen, you don't see that much fighting on screen, but just massive blocking with people moving and walking around places and having different conversations. It's fascinating to see. 
Yeah, it feels huge, even though there's usually only like a maximum of one horse on screen at a time. It feels like there are 20. <laughs> but she has these big crowd scenes, which feel very grand. And I think her favorite camera move is like the push in onto a person that she uses oh, a bunch incredible of oh. push ins here. Yeah. Yeah. And I was struck by the one with Leonor when she's like talking about how she has to get married. And then. Oh, my God. That's like the, a, her walking. Plus, that's and a great looking up. shot. And then oh the tilt up to the God. singing man, I guess. That's a great visual, even though it's not really important, but like it's a great visual to complement that idea, you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, and Two... it does, I think, elevate that idea of the past love that we don't really spend that much time on to kind of give it more import within the context of the film. I want to highlight two push-ins that I really loved and tie a thread between these three push-ins. So the first <laughs> is when Jose is at the meeting of the wealthy medical students in Spain. Mm -hmm. And he's starting to sort of be at odds with their sensibilities. And they're talking about him to him. And the camera kind of just starts pushing in from down by the side of the table up past the other guests and going closer to him. And he just looks uncomfortable. And the second one is after Rizal has been killed by the firing squad, the young man who had been cleaning his oh. cell and brought him ham on Christmas, that push in on him, which is much more quick than the one with the rich gentleman. And then the jail cell worker just like looks up and you see him think of what Rizal told him earlier that education is not enough to make someone see what's right and moral. And Mary Lou Diaz Abaya conjures that through that actor's expression without needing to cut to a flashback. But the thread I want to tie between all three of these push-ins is that these push-ins are all excellent at separating someone from their surroundings and putting mm. them at odd with the people around them. Which, if you think about the technique itself, that's exactly what it does. It isolates someone and pushes away their surroundings. So it yeah. just feels like a super smart, effective, clear, grammatical way to use the push-in across the movie to tie a thread between Rizal's experience and the experience of people who suffer similar types of oppression to what he does. You put it so well, Eli. And I think like Cheers. that just... It <laughs> it just shows how textbook good of a filmmaker Mary yes. Lou Diaz at, yeah. is. It's just, you cannot fault the filmmaking <laughs> behind it. It's just really on point most of the, if not all of the time, that she's behind camera. And I think it's reflected in how she works on set. People say that she's well-prepped well studied before coming to set and she knows exactly what she wants and it, she just goes for it. It feels like the kind of filmmaking that's kind of invisible. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It's, I want to say workmanlike, but not in a way that feels too detracting. Well, but I, I don't have the right of, word for it. <laughs> at risk of also being reductive in a different way, I did think of Spielberg style which oh, is yeah. similarly kind of invisible, but distinctive and just very sharply utilized, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I, 
I would call that a good comparison. Like, of course. Uh, yeah, like I would say so. Like I think that's a good comparison. Like it's invisible, but strong and always has the point of the scene in mind, right? It's immersive. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I think all the house scenes made me think of Il Gattopardo. I thought the same thing. <laughs> yes. What? <laughs> Wilson's just like, what? The leopard? The Italian film? Oh, From Lucino Visconti? That yes. big movie? Yeah, the yes. house scenes all remind me of that. Because of production design and like the lushness of like how everything looks. Mm-hmm. The lighting. The is, dancing. Yeah. is incredible in this. Like You can really feel so much attention to detail was put into yeah, the production yeah, design yeah. of this movie. I mean, you can tell this is a very expensive movie. Yes. <laughs> You can tell, like, even in, what is this, 480p. <laughs> to pile on the craft praise, the editing is so well-timed. Like, another form of seamlessness comes in the form of just cutting on the right moment and or waiting for Montano to give a little accent to his reaction to something and mm. give it that extra breath of air. Makes it feel very alive and seamless. I'm excited for you guys to to watch the next film because it's sort of applying those really stellar filmmaking techniques into a story that is a little less conventional. Sure. Mm. And I think the other Ricky Lee screenplay is like pretty phenomenal. Uh, yeah, not to hype it up too much, but it's really damn no, no, good. Hype it up. <laughs> it's very solid. It's very well made. I did enjoy it. Even though it's three hours and I watched it in multiple parts, it did feel like I could sink into it and Mm -hmm. I was engaged. Because I hadn't heard of Rizal, I was kind of holding out hope that he would survive in the end. And I feel like that speaks to some level of emotional (laughs) engagement, right? Yeah. I was a little scared that it would just be a bore to both of you. Um, I mean... (laughs) It's been made for me. Yeah, even though if I respect a lot of the making of it, you know, like, yeah, no hate to to MDA. Like, I mean, like, I think it looks good. It's just I I think yeah. it's tough for me with biopics. I generally find biopics kind of test my patience. Yeah, and I think this is really in that same camp. And it being three hours doesn't help it that much. No, uh, I would say perhaps a touch too long. Oh, definitely. <laughs> I would cut like a good 30 minutes from that. <laughs> like easy, maybe even an hour. <laughs> <laughs> But I'm glad that this is our introduction to Merely Dia Zabaya and also yep. to Philip. Can only go up cinema. in Wilson's rankings. Of course, of course. <laughs> the only way is up. Hmm. Um, and stay tuned for our next episode where we will be talking about her most popular film on Letterbox, <laughs> Morale. Cool. Thank you for listening to this episode of Deep Cut. Please rate and review because that helps us keep making the show. Be sure to subscribe to us where you listen to podcasts so you'll know when our next episode drops. Keep up with Deep Cut on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Letterboxd at Deep Cut Pod. Join us to talk about movies on our Discord server, to which you'll find a link in the description. Thank you to Justina Yam for our beautiful artwork. I'm Wilson. I'm Ben. I'm Eli. Take care, and we're looking forward to talking about more movies with you next time.